This Bag of Bones episode is supported by Damsel in Defense, equipping women with personal protection so you won't be a victim. This episode is also supported by Lumi Deodorant, the number one ranked natural deodorant. This episode of Bag of Bones also gets a discretionary warning due to graphic violence against children. The title of this episode is Stolen Innocence. To me, this means any trauma that happens in childhood that plucks away at the span of time that children should have no worries, no fears. It steals away their trust, their dreamless sleep. It steals away that short window of space in their life when they should truly be able to believe that there is no such thing as monsters. But sadly, there are. And sadly, they prey upon the most innocent of victims, changing their lives forever. Their innocence is stolen. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones. Before we begin, let me say again that this episode gets a graphic violence warning. There is some hard truth coming your way, and it does involve children. Please be advised. December 1871. Chelsea, a suburb of Boston. It was near the Christmas holiday and snow covered the ground. The two men could see their breath as they walked up toward Powderhorn Hill. They paused when they thought they heard a noise. Continuing on, they approached a small cabin, and inside they heard a whimpering. They slowly opened the door, and there, barely conscious, hung four-year-old William Payne. His wrists were bound with a rope that was hung from a beam over his head. One man rushed to support his weight as the other cut him down. The child whimpered in pain. He was exposed from the neck to his waist, and his skin was practically transparent from the cold. His lips were blue, and he struggled to keep his eyes open. On his back he had rows and rows of raised red welts. He had been severely beaten and left there to die. The men took him to the police and he was reunited with his family, but unable to help the police with any clues at the time. With no leads and a traumatized victim, the police could do nothing but hope that this would be a one-time offense. Sadly, young William was only the first. Less than 60 days later, in February of the new year, seven-year-old Tracy Hayden was lured up to Powder Horn Hill with the promise of getting to see soldiers. Tracy Hayden was completely stripped and whipped with a switch. He was bound and laying on the ground, and his aggressor gave in to his rage as he continued to beat the child. He eventually knocked out the front teeth, blackened both his eyes to the point of swelling completely shut, and broke his nose. Barely alive, he was unable to give the police much to go on, saying that he threatened him more bodily harm if he said anything. Robert Mayer was eight years old when he was lured across the marshes with the promise of P.T. Barnum's circus. 
It was the 20th of May, 1872, when his assailant took him near the water's edge and forced him to disrobe. The boy was forced to his knees and prompted to say curse words as his abuser picked up a board and beat him with it. When he tired of this abuse, he untied the child and threatened that if the boy told anyone, he would be back to kill him. He fled and left Robert there. He was taken to the police once found, but did not betray his abuser. It was after the attack of Johnny Balk on July 22nd that a reward was offered for information to apprehend this, quote, inhuman scamp. $500 was advertised in all the major newspapers, and the neighborhood watch, more or less, rose up to protect the boys of the neighborhood of Chelsea. And, for whatever reason, which they could not have known at the time, the attacks did stop in Chelsea. As a mother of grown daughters and with me traveling alone across the country, personal safety is always on my mind. I am always aware of my surroundings. I always let my people know where and when I'm going places. But to add that extra level of safety, I am never unprotected. Thanks to Damsel in Defense, I have several options for my personal safety. And can I just say, they are super cute. But don't think that just because they have bling that they won't do some damage to allow you to get to safety. And Damsel in Defense has thought of everything. DNA grab, GPS alerts, and easy to carry and access should the need ever arise. For your safety and all the women in your sphere, I beg you to check out these amazing products at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. August 17th, South Boston, the papers report a most heinous crime that has struck their town. Seven-year-old George Pratt was found naked along the shoreline, severely beaten and scratched with human fingernails. In his report to the police, he told how the man stabbed him with a long needle in his arms and his groin and struck him over and over with a belt in the rage, claiming that the child had lied three times. He scratched his face and body and bit a chunk of flesh from his cheek and backside. Heaving breathlessly, the assailant left the boy and fled. The town was racked with fear and rage. The increasing frequency and mutilation of the attacks suggested that whatever compulsion drove the attacker to do what he did and seek out the victims he chose, he was finding it increasingly difficult to keep it under control. Parents were afraid, rightfully so and demanded action to be taken. But before they could get very far, another victim came forward. Six-year-old Harry Austin. On September 5th, Harry Austin was discovered barely alive. He was naked and bound, beat with a belt. Three puncture wounds were discovered under each arm and in the center of his back, done with a small penknife blade. The assailant then straddled the child and was attempting to mutilate him further, but was interrupted and the child was saved. While South Boston was still reeling, another attack happened. Seven-year-old Joseph Kennedy was taken to the marshes 
stripped naked, and beaten. He was pushed to his knees when his assailant would force him to say the Lord's Prayer. He would beat him when he messed up, and he began to exchange the words from the prayer to curse words, and tell Joseph Kennedy to repeat it. When he did, the aggressor became infuriated and sliced Joseph across the face with his blade, making several cuts. He took the boy to the edge of the water, dunked his face and body into the cold, salty ocean, forcing him to wash his wounds while he danced around him and laughed. Along the railroad tracks, only six days later, on September 17th, Robert Gould was stripped naked and tied to a post. The five-year-old was beaten with a belt, and when the older boy grew bored, he took out his knife and began carving into Robert's hairline, scalping him. The child cried out, and the assailant pulled up close to his face, piercing him under his chin, threatening to cut his throat. But it was then, thankfully, that railroad workers approached and the attacker fled. This time, however, though beaten and bleeding, this child, Robert Gould, was able to give the police a clue. Robert would describe his attacker as a large boy with an eye of a white marble. Finally, the police had something to go on. They had a lead, a teenaged boy with brown hair and a white eye. The police wasted no time and asked Mr. and Mrs. Gould if Robert could accompany them to the local schools to do a room-by-room search, but Robert was still healing from his wounds and only just got stitches on his scalp. The police asked the family of Joseph Kennedy, and they consented. They went to all the schools and room by room, but Joseph could not identify his attacker. And then, and it has never been explained why, Jesse Harding Pomeroy walked into the police station that 21st day of September. He saw the Kennedy child and turned around and walked back out. The boy pointed and identified his attacker. The police ran after the 12-year-old, stopped him on the street, and brought him back to the station. Joseph Kennedy identified him once again and he was put into a cell. He had a white spot on his left eye. And soon, he was identified by all eight victims. Jesse Harding Pomeroy was born in September of 1859 to Thomas and Ruth Pomeroy in Charlestown, Massachusetts. He had an older brother by 20 months by the name of Charles. Mrs. Pomeroy was described as a, quote, grass widow by the Boston pilot, meaning she was perfectly, quote, well able to take care of herself with or without a husband, without Jesse or anybody else, end quote. She had a dress shop in the South Boston area, and Charles ran a healthy newspaper route. Mr. Pomeroy was described thus, quote, Jesse's father was a porter in a shipping house. He is a rough, big-looking man, somewhat morose, but by no means given to vice of any kind, end quote. So says a Brooklyn Eagle correspondent. Jesse would later say in his biography, how he would go to the docks and help his father do whatever a child of his size would do. Contrary to popular belief and reports, Jesse himself claims that he was not abused by his father. He was a difficult child at times, he admits, and he got a beating a time or two from his teachers and also from his uncle that they would spend the summer with. 
and when he was examined for his trial, no signs of physical abuse were documented. The cataract of his eye, his mother claimed, was an adverse effect from smallpox vaccine. Others believed it was from a high fever or a childhood illness that left him mostly blind in one eye. But other than his eye, he was large for his age. One of the doctors that examined him made a comment that if they didn't know his exact age, they would have guessed him to be 16 or 17 because he was tall and built out. There was a hearing, and Jesse did confess to the crimes, later recanting his story, but it was too late. He was sent to reform school, which was a strict military-type school where they would both work and do schooling every day. He was remanded to the facility until he turned 18. Jesse thrived under the structured environment of the House of Reformation in Westboro. He was a model of obedience and reform. He worked in a cane shop, weaving the seats of cane chairs. He worked hard and didn't really make friends with anyone. After only four months at this job, he was promoted to a hall monitor of sorts, and again promoted from that. In fact, the faculty all thought that Jesse Pomeroy had been reformed, and, on their own accord, decided to release him after only serving a year and a half of his sentence. When the school petitioned the police chief about the early release of young Pomeroy, Chief Dyer would say, quote, It isn't best to be down on a boy too hard for too long. Give him a chance to redeem himself. End quote. Ruth promised to keep her child busy, and she did. Early in the mornings he was to clean the dress shop, and in the afternoons he was to deliver papers to the 125 recipients on his brother's afternoon route entrusted to him. Maybe he tried to change, maybe he didn't. Maybe he couldn't help himself when the opportunity showed up at his door. Whatever the reason, Jesse's earlier exploits were not completely in the past. It had only been six weeks since he had been thought to be completely healed of his past transgressions when ten-year-old Katie Curran unknowingly tested fate. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt. But do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Isle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com merch now to check things out. It was early in the day of March 18, 1874, when Katie Curran would enter the closed dress shop looking for a notebook for school. The shop was not yet open to the public as Jesse was cleaning the store and talking to an errand boy that also worked for his brother, Rudolf Kor. Katie came in and explained her plight about not being able to purchase a notebook, and Jesse told her that he might have one in the back, that it had ink stains, so he agreed to sell it to her for two cents cheaper. According to Rudolf, Jesse then sent him to the market for cat meat and left them alone. Jesse led the girl to the dirt floor cellar of the store, and according to his later testimony, quote, I followed her, put my arm around her neck, stopped her mouth with my left hand, and with my knife, cut her throat with my jackknife. I then dragged her behind the water closet, laying her head furthest away from me, and I threw some stones and ashes on her. When I was in the cellar, I heard my brother at an outside door trying to get in. I washed my hands and the bloody knife at the water pipe and then let my brother into the shop. End quote. And while this testimony in and of itself is horrifying. 
but what the coroner would later describe was even worse. Jesse apparently cut the front of Katie's dress open, and there were multiple stab wounds in her abdomen and genitalia and thighs. Her head was almost completely separated from her body. The timeline is a bit murky, as the dress shop would have opened at 8.30 in the morning when his brother and another shop worker would have shown up, which gives him only, at most, 30 minutes to murder her, bury her under stones and ashes, clean himself up, and answer his brother's knock in time to open the store. I could find no notes where anyone suspected anything. No one noticed blood, no bloody clothes, no signs of distress, or even being out of breath. But I know you're thinking it too. Charles, throughout my entire research, remains silent. I could find no information on him during this time in his life anywhere. So, poor Katie Curran is not discovered, and the small town in South Boston moves on, assuming that she had been kidnapped, but in the mind and heart of Jesse Pomeroy, the bloodlust that was repressed for 16 months was awakened. Not even three weeks pass when Jesse sees Horace Millen go into a bakery. Horace is five years old. Jesse instigated a friendship with the boy and suggested they take a walk down by the water and, in turn, the innocent child shared his cupcake along the way. There were many who witnessed the pair walking from the busy street of Broadway toward the bay, but neither showed any sign of alarm, so it was just noted. The two even paused and chatted briefly with a teenager digging for clams before they continued down the shoreline beyond the vision of a passerby. Jesse suggested that they pause to sit down, and it was only seconds later that he pulled out his knife and slashed the boy's throat. Despite the cut being deep and blood gurgling from the gaping wound, poor Horace was still alive and fought against every thrust of the knife into his tiny little chest. His hands and arms showed defense wounds, and there was skin found under his nails indicating that he was alive for most of the abuse. Jesse slashed through his windpipe, eventually ending the struggle, which was the only merciful thing he did, as Horace was no longer feeling the pain from the additional mutilation that followed. Jesse continued to chop and hack at the boy's lifeless body, castrating him and stabbing his eye with the full blade of the knife. Horace Millen's body was found around four o'clock in the afternoon, laying out in the sun for no less than four hours. News of the mutilated body spread quickly, and this would be the first time that the reporters in the area would discover that Jesse Pomeroy had only just been released from his six-year sentence six weeks ago. The town went crazy. First, that he was released. Second, that no one notified. And third, why was he not already in custody? The police went to the Pomeroy household and found Jesse. Much to the protests of his mother, he was taken into custody. When at the police station, they asked his whereabouts for the day and he struggled with missing time gaps. Later during his inquest, when asked again, he had a more detailed listing of the hours and minutes of his day. In his autobiography, he gave his reader a moment-by-moment -moment recreation of his day, complete with how he was feeling. They asked if he owned a knife, and he said he did. They asked how he cleans his knife, and he responded that he stabs it into the ground. The police went to his home and picked up his knife, 
and it was found to have blood, dirt, and sand crammed into the creases and crevices. When asked about the blood found on the knife, he shrugged his shoulders. Jesse was taken to a cell where he promptly fell asleep. The coroner fitted the knife for the crime, and they made plaster casts of footprints found at the scene, and they began to find witnesses who could confirm seeing Jesse with the boy within the time frame. Despite the evidence put before him, he still claimed his innocence. The police chief decided to take him to the morgue so that he could see the effects of his handiwork. Jesse took one look at the small, mangled, bloated body and broke down in tears, claiming that he did it, crying, I don't know why I did it. I couldn't stop. And obviously not realizing the seriousness of the moment, added for them to please not tell his mother. Shortly following his confession and the coroner's inspection, they believed that they had probable cause to charge 14-year-old Jesse Harding Pomeroy with the murder and held an inquest. Before the proceedings, Jesse had an opportunity to meet with attorneys and his mother, and he recanted his confession. When he was called to the stand at the inquest, he denied everything and recounted a much more detailed story of how he spent the day of April 21, 1874. The evidence against him, however, was sufficient to warrant the charges, and he was then indicted for first-degree murder. The news of Jesse Pomeroy being charged with murder sent waves of fury through the small town. Ruth's dress shop was forced to close, and Charles's newspaper service went under as well. There is no information about how the news affected Thomas's work at the ports, but Ruth was said to still do some seamstress work from her home. And Ruth's dress shop, I'm sure I don't have to remind you of what transpired there, now the building is vacant, and the temperatures starting to rise and natural decay, it wasn't long that the workmen hired to upgrade the shop discovered Katie Curran's body in the piles of ash. The police had a pretty good idea who was behind this murder, even though earlier the police chief Dyer rebuffed Mrs. and Mr. Curran's requests for help investigating their child's disappearance. Back when Rudolph Kaur came forward and told the girl's parents that Katie had come into the dress shop when he left her and Jesse alone, leaving him the last one to see Katie alive, making Jesse their only lead. The chief of police would go down in history as saying, quote, I understand he was completely rehabilitated in reform school, and besides, he only hurt little boys. He never attacked a girl, end quote. Needless to say, they already had Jesse in the jail cell and just needed him to confess to Katie's murder. He claims he knew nothing about it, but it was in the back of everyone's mind. If Ruth and his brother Charles knew about the crime and they were just keeping it quiet, just to be on the safe side, they were both arrested as accessories to murder, which actually turned out to work in their favor. When the detectives told Jesse that they were going to book his mother and brother for the death of Katie Curran, Jesse confessed. He gave a hauntingly detailed outline of the crime. He drew out a map of the basement's layout and gave the police the answers they were waiting for. Ruth and Charles were released, and from that day forward, Ruth Pomeroy would defend her son's innocence until her dying breath. Two months before he went to trial, Jesse recanted his confessions, and in a conversation with a Dr. Tyler, adamantly denied having anything to do with either murder. 
No amount of prodding, then or ever, could change his mind. Three or more doctors all came in to talk with Jesse, trying to get a mental sketch of his motives or remorse, if any. Mr. Robinson was to be his defending lawyer and saw early on that his only option for saving the youth from the hanging was to plead insanity. He said, quote, When a person indicted for murder or manslaughter is acquitted by a jury by reason of insanity, the court shall order such person to be committed to one of the state lunatic hospitals during his natural life, end quote. He hoped that the doctors would help in that regard. The defense brought in two psych doctors and the prosecutor brought in one of their own. For the most part, they all said that he was cooperative in answering all of their questions. At times he would admit to the murders and the torture of the eight boys, talking openly about them, and other times he would claim his innocence completely. The trial was a media frenzy. It opened on December 8, 1874, before a packed courtroom in Boston. The newspapers reported on the trial stating, The inquest was held in the guardroom and the jury assembled promptly at four o'clock. The inquest was public. Anything that the witnesses might say and the members of the press and all persons interested in the case were freely admitted. End quote. The Boston Globe described Jesse's features this way, quote, They are wicked eyes, sullenly, brutish, wicked eyes, and as in moments of wandering thought the boy looks out of them, he seems one who could delight in the writhings of his helpless victims beneath the stab of the knife, the puncture of the owl, or the prick of the pin, as he so often delighted in, end quote. Another newspaper reported the story of the prosecution urging Ruth Pomeroy's belief that he was marked because of her actions while she was pregnant with Jesse. She told the court's doctors at the time her husband was a butcher, and she went daily to the butcher house while pregnant and witnessed seeing her husband butcher sheep and cattle, and not infrequently she assisted him in this bloody work. And when Jesse was young and given a knife, whenever the opportunity offered, he would jab his knife into pieces of meat and when about his father's market, he did the same thing. These facts certainly explain in measure why Jesse could not help doing these things as he told the court he was simply marked by his mother. End quote. Robinson believed that his only chance was to make the jury see that their only option was to issue the plea of insanity, and he set up his defense. He pulled in Jesse's mother back up to the stand to build sympathy for the love of a mother for her son and to offer the other possible reasons Jesse became this way. Ruth recounted the number of childhood illnesses that could have had an effect on his developing brain, such as the fever he suffered just before his first birthday, which prompted a three-day delirium followed by an unexplained shaking of the head. When prompted, Ruth answered in the affirmative when she was asked if Jesse suffered from numerous mental ailments such as insomnia, dizziness, and frequent violent headaches. Ruth testified that her youngest son was, quote, addicted to dreaming extravagant dreams which would haunt him the following day, end quote. Side note, author Don Keatley looks back on the case for her research for her book Making a Monster and reveals a different and unique explanation for Pomeroy's psychopathy. 
a bad reaction to a vaccine he received as an infant during the smallpox epidemic in Boston. Now hang on, this isn't an attack on the vaccination, she says, but she continues that the result of the allergic reaction was a breakout on his skin where the boy's entire body became covered with blisters and abscesses for months, leaving him in a state of constant pain, unable to be touched or held during a critical time of child development. She writes, quote, Infants need to be held, to be comforted, to form an attachment with a caregiver. My theory is that none of that happened, and that caused his psychopathy. He had no empathy, really no interior life at all. He was unable to form bonds with people. End quote. The first medical practitioner to testify for the defense was Dr. Tyler. The doctor claimed, quote, He is a lunatic. He has no motive and seemingly indifferent to his crimes, its consequences, and the barbarity of his offenses. Whether Jesse knew right from wrong when he committed the crimes was irrelevant. Lunatics have their own sense of morality. End quote. And Dr. Tyler, after the prosecution dissected his testimony, added, quote, that Jesse evokes no pity for the boys tortured or the victims of his homicide and no remorse or sorrow for his acts, end quote. He believed that Jesse was capable of discriminating between right and wrong, but because of that, he said, quote, the boy was and forever would be a threat to society. He needed to be carefully restrained of his liberty that others might not be endangered, end quote. His final opinion, Jesse Pomeroy was insane. The second doctor, although he claimed that Jesse was not responsible when he committed the acts charged against him, also admitted under Cross that Jesse fled after committing the crimes, so as to escape punishment was clear evidence of his power to distinguish right from wrong. Dr. George T. Choate, the third doctor, contradicted the two defense doctors, he called Jesse cunning and deeply manipulative and said the boy was free from mental defect. Officer James R. Wood told the jury about his conversation with Jesse in the early part of the investigation, referring to what made him torture the little boys before. Pomeroy said that he didn't know, and when Wood asked, quote, Might you have killed that little boy yesterday and not known it? Jesse Pomeroy said, quote, I don't know. I might have. I guess I did. End quote. Additional testimony came from the victims of Jesse's molestation. After the heart wrenching testimony of one of the boy victims that was brought back in and told the court his story about how Jesse had whipped him and pricked him on the body and arms with his knife, Judge Forsaith paused and turned to Jesse and asked him, Jesse, did you do as the little boy says? Yes, sir, answered Jesse. Why did you do so? asked the judge. I don't know, your honor. Only I couldn't help it. I had to do it. The last victim, Robert Gould, still bearing the scars on his face from where Jesse's knife had cut him, after retelling his nightmarish tale, stepped down from the stand, and the entire room was silent. Robinson had hoped that by hearing these stories it would force the jury's hand, proving that only an insane person at such a young age could have perpetrated these sadistic, violent acts. But it enraged the twelve men on the jury. Jesse Pomeroy, no matter how old he is, 
should never see the light of day again. Following closing arguments, the jury retired to discuss the consequences and decide the fate of a 14-year-old boy. They stumbled only once on one factor and requested more guidance on premeditation. Jesse assumed that he would be put into jail, perhaps for five years, until he was grown, and then he'd be allowed to join the Navy, which would teach him discipline. His character was nonchalant, almost bored in appearance. After five hours of deliberation, court was called back in session, and the jury read their verdict. Jesse Harding Pomeroy was found guilty of first-degree premeditated murder. The sentence for the crime of this magnitude was automatic and mandatory. Death by hanging. The jurors, however, requested clemency for the boy on account of his age, which was a matter for the governor to decide, if it's granted or overridden. But at this moment, the judge had no choice but to condemn the prisoner. Sentencing was delayed several weeks because of post-trial motions, but in February of 1875, Judge Horace Gray looked down on Jesse Pomeroy from his pulpit and said, quote, Turn your thoughts to an appeal to the eternal judge of all our hearts and a preparation to the doom which awaits you, end quote. He then ordered Jesse taken to prison to await execution. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere here with Bag of Bones, and I have to tell you I am so excited to have Lumi Deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaigned to get Lumi on this podcast and my website. That's how much I love their products. They are all natural, and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women, and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee, and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. Capital punishment in the 1870s was usually carried out in less than a year, but this case was unique. Massachusetts had never put to death a minor before, and there was cries from both sides. Those who begged the courts for clemency for one so young, and then those for justice for Horace Millen, whose life was taken so young. And even though the murder of Katie Curran was not on trial, she was brought in for weight as well. Two years after much hemming and hawing, for no governor wanted this sentence on their resume, Governor Rice called in advisors once again to test the climate of the people and discovered that they did not lust for his hanging so much and would be willing to accept a punishment that was other than death, but it must be severe. So Rice, without any kind of press release, commuted Jesse Pomeroy's sentence to solitary confinement for the rest of his natural life without the chance of parole. During those two years, Jesse stayed in the Boston jail cell waiting for the final sentence to be handed down. He had plenty of time to read. 
A voracious reader, he tackled many of the law books he had access to and decided to tell his side of the story in his autobiography. He claims his innocence, of course. And, I'll admit, as I was following along with his words, he almost had me believing it, too. It was easy to get your thoughts twisted around when you have someone who understands how to manipulate them. However, the more he rambled on, his patterns began to show themselves. In one area, he directed his response to what he refers to as an attack from the stand that he was caught as a young child stabbing a kitten. He writes, quote, The thing never occurred. It is utterly preposterous to believe that at the tender age of three years, a mere infant should be found on the street torturing a cat. I can't believe and I can't see how others can. I would not know any better. But, even for the moment, if that story is true, it goes to show the taste for blood was born in me, though I can't undertake to show, but I will say that I can believe no other theory to be true, but I do not believe the story to be true. If it is, it goes to prove that it is born in me. End quote. In another place he states, quote, I did not kill Katie Curran or Horace H. Millen, and even if I did, it would show that I was more insane than anything else when I did it, end quote. He dissects his case through the witnesses and talks quite deeply about his time with his doctors. He talks about his rosy past and how he was great friends with his classmates, which was not true, and he attacks the jury system. And through his entire rant, or, sorry, defense, he refers to himself as a boy, as in, he says, quote, I am not a cruel boy, end quote. He believed that he, quote, ought to be sent out to sea for a few years, and then he will have overcome the desire to torture and kill children, end quote, if he did have such a desire, which he didn't, says he. He responded to those who said that he showed no feelings, no remorse, by saying, quote, if I took pleasure in thinking of it, I would be talking of it, boasting of it. It is not so. I never have boasted about this thing. It is nothing to boast of, but ought to be hidden away in the darkest place possible, and then only thought of in a spirit of sorrow and remorse. If I did those things, I would never have talked about them without the deepest feelings of shame and reproach. But, as I did not do those things... I do not have those feelings. End quote. Life in solitary confinement meant that Jesse Pomeroy lived in a small cell of concrete and steel. He ate alone, exercised, walked alone, was not allowed outside, was not allowed other visitors other than his mother once a month, which she showed up faithfully every time bearing food until she died. My son is a martyr, Mrs. Pomeroy would comment after 33 years of her son's imprisonment, still claiming his innocence. They told him that I was accused of his crimes, that if he didn't confess to them, I would have to go to prison. He confessed to save me because he loves me, End quote. She died at the age of 74 in 1915. He would receive no more visitors for the rest of his life. In a newspaper article bringing the famed murderer back into the spotlight reads, quote, The men who bore witness against him, the attorney who defended him, 
the jurors who called him guilty, the judge who sentenced him to death, the governor who saved him from the rope, are all dead. Massachusetts people have no sympathy for Pomeroy. His crimes have cut him completely off from the world of men. Occasional efforts have been made to get a reprieve for him, but public sentiment has always intervened. End quote. Jesse read books and learned to read and write in several languages. He attempted to escape several times during his sentence and ended up blowing out a wall of his cell once, causing him to lose hearing in one of his ears. For 41 years, this was Jesse's existence. In 1917, his sentence was relaxed and he was allowed limited time with the general population. In 1929, Jesse, at the age of 71, was moved from his Charlestown solitary confinement to the Bridgewater Prison Farm for aged prisoners. It was the first time riding in a car and his first time seeing the outside world in over 50 years. He recanted all of his confessions over the years and claimed that he was innocent. On September 29, 1932, Jesse Harding Pomeroy died of natural causes after spending 58 years in prison, most of it in solitary confinement. His final wishes were to be cremated and his ashes scattered to the four winds. He was the youngest person in America to be convicted of first-degree murder until the year of 2001 when Lionel Tate was convicted one year younger at the age of 13. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Bag of Bones. If you are liking our weekly episodes, it would really help to get this podcast in front of more listeners if you wouldn't mind leaving a rating and review. It's a quick two minutes, but would mean so very much. If you'd like to hang out between episodes, I can be found on Facebook or Instagram at Bag of Bones or on my home turf at elizabethbougeret.com. As always, I'm so glad you could join me. Until next week then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises. Hello, listeners. We are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt. And we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat.